Hey guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. A quick note before the show begins. The audio from these podcasts mostly come from live video YouTube streams on my channel. They may vary in quality from show to show and reference visual content not described to you, the listener. I'm sorry about that. If you prefer video to go with this audio, head over to youtube.com backslash from us, F-R-U-M-E-S-S for the whole enchilada. Who doesn't like a whole enchilada anyway? Boom, 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 bye. Uh, uh, ha, hi, boom, boom, boom. Dig a moon dog, dig a road dog, dig a road hog. So you can celebrate anything you know. Yes, you can celebrate anything you know. I told you so. I don't, those aren't the lyrics. I freaking love that song, Dig a Pony. People don't talk enough about Dig a Pony. Actually, I think people constantly are talking about the Beatles. We're constantly talking about the Beatles. We're on a Beatles kick right now because of Get Back. This is, we haven't seen this kind of flurry and fathom. (laughs) That doesn't really make any sense. We haven't seen... This kind of fury over the Beatles since the Beatles anthology in the mid 90s. It's pretty awesome. Um, I'm just so stoked to see so many people just reveling in the revelations that we are getting from this footage. I, I really cannot think it, it can't be understated how much of uh, a masterpiece this thing is. It could have been 18 hours long like the first cut and it would have been a masterpiece. It's just, it's just something else. It's just something else. I I was very excited to sit down and, you know, do this, uh, uh, watch part two. You know, I took extensive notes, extensive notes. What's going on? Misfit medic. It, It really was amazing. I haven't watched part three yet. I'm watching, a segment i'm watching you know an episode and then doing a review after taking meticulous notes i also brought because i know it's going to come up in conversation you never give me your money for those of you who are listening to the podcast version that's right this this is also a podcast as well this is a book by um pete doggett the beatles after the breakup and we're gonna take a look at this as well because it's important to the conversation at hand but let's dive right in so where we last left off in the narrative in the story in the document that is being documented uh george has left the band there is a a, a, you know i've been saying and i was quite surprised at what we found in the footage but i've been you know going on and on about how there was a fist fight between uh, John and George, and I remember reading about it in this book over here, and I guess maybe there wasn't. I, I honestly don't know what to believe at this point because the footage kind of says otherwise. We don't really see any of that. We just see George leaves. You know, he says, see you in the clubs. You know, he he goes to Liverpool for a week. They're just they're just hanging around. They don't know what to do. Um. It really is, you know, Yoko gets a mic. She asks for a mic. She gets a mic. She starts wailing and screaming into the mic. It's just, it's bedlam. It's bedlam for the Beatles in that kind of way. Um, And you're, it's kind of like, what's going to happen now? I mean, this is really, 
this is bad news. This is pro I mean, we're in the truly in the heart of darkness right now, and there's no there's no light at the end of the tunnel. So here's what basically happens. So only Ringo shows up on the following Monday, at first at least. Then Paul joins, but George is out of the band, gone, and John and Yoko don't even show up. Uh, Neil Aspinall, the the guy who's running, he you know he's running Apple. He calls to see if John is going to show up or even if George is going to show up. Um, Linda comes in and she's mentioning. She says she starts talking about how Yoko was talking for John yesterday in 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 reference to the meeting that had took taken place at George's house. Because what happens is after George leaves the band, the other guys go around to George's house to try and work things out. The meeting does not go well. George ends up leaving the meeting early, I think. And John doesn't talk. John doesn't talk. Instead, it's Yoko who's talking for John. And um, John, and, and the other thing too is, Linda's talking about how she doesn't believe that, because Yoko was saying a bunch of stuff in that meeting, which again, is all in this book. Here's the thing that I love about this book and why I have such a sort of skeptical view about what Get Back is trying to show us. This book is meticulously researched. You, they, they have all the stuff in the back. They show you at, where every quote, everything is cited and anything that is scuttlebutt is noted as scuttlebutt. I really think that Peter Doggett has... Um, great integrity i don't know if you call author integrity or journalistic integrity when writing about the beatles breakup this is a really great book though i highly recommend everybody read this it really starts when the beatles break up and it just talks about everything alan klein that's how i know half of what i know and the thing that i like most about it is because there's no bend on it it's very impartial it kind of tells you the ugly details as they happen so uh, which this movie, these documentaries are, are are skipping over greatly, right? Like, I mean, they've been really skipping over the 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 um the all the all the ugly details are getting skipped over, and we're getting shown the best bits, the brightest, the brightest, happiest moments in the in the whole thing. So, you know, it, it leaves you wondering, like, wh how and where and why should you think about what, you know? And um, so so Linda is talking about how Yoko was was just talking for John and John's unresponsive. He's not talking at all and that she's sort of skeptical. She doesn't believe that John believes half of the stuff that Yoko was saying. That's what I was trying, that's the point I was trying to get at. Um, and we don't know what is being said, but it was said during that Harrison House meeting. And again, it is sort of talked about in this book. And I actually, I read that book 10 years ago. So I don't remember what exactly was, was being said in it. So, you know, bad on me. I wish I should have reread this book before I watched Get Back in order for this review to have a, a truly clear picture of everything that is going on or should be going on, yada, 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 that kind of thing. So then Paul is talking about things. He's talking about his relationship with John and John's relationship with the Beatles. And he basically admits that John would probably pick Yoko over the Beatles. And it's almost like he's almost accepting of what the inevitable is in, in that kind of way. 
you know, I think this is why, and again, that book definitely says some, you know, sh shows a nastier side of Paul towards Yoko, but all we see in the footage, and again, remember, we're, we're seeing a, a manicured, uh, Beatle-produced document, even if it's more footage, even if it's giving us context to all the ugly stuff and let it be, it's still, remember we said three filters, there's three filters we got to go through. So... You know, there is definitely stuff that is not present on the screen that definitely is mentioned in that book. And, you know, but they do that, you know, I, and that doesn't take away from Peter Jackson's integrity. He has a lot of integrity and it, you, it, you, it shows it shows on the screen. I really just want to say that my criticisms of leaving things out of which the Beatles obviously should have done and had to do and would want to do for their legacy. I don't, I don't hold it against them. I'm just trying to, you know, acknowledge the reality that this is not exactly 100% accurate of everything that happened. That's all I want to say about that. Okay. Uh, my view of this time has completely changed from watching this documentary completely. I mean, it, it really was, it was, it, it's not that it, it was definitely a negative time. It was definitely a challenging time, but it was also, a, it was a time where, it was a time where they overcame adversity. I think that's the theme of Peter Jackson's documentary over, say, maybe Michael Lindsay Hogg's version of Let It Be. The It's, it's Peter Jackson showing how the Beatles reached the bottom of the barrel, like the lowest point that they could possibly reach, and then somehow managed to transcend that adversity and overcome it. Uh, you know, of course, with some concessions, they did not set, they did not, they did not achieve what they set out to do, but they didn't give up and they kept pushing on until they had something, whether it was a good something or a bad something. And we all, listen, we all love Let It Be. I love Let It Be. It's a brilliant freaking album. Those songs are brilliant. They're absolutely brilliant. And you know, it's amazing how they could go into the studio and create these masterpiece songs that are just so many, like there's so many overdubs and there's so much going on. And then like parabolic evolution, they come out of it and they're like, okay, now let's strip it back down. Of course, when they strip things back down, you, we don't get the please, please me Beatles we get like this new version. It's almost like it's like the 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 Sergeant Pepper White Album Beatles trying to write songs like the 1962 Beatles. That's what Let It Be is essentially. When you think about it, that's what Let It Be is. It's it is you know um, it's the Beatles trying to go back to that place and strip down the sound. However, like we talk about with so many artists on this channel, it's hard to go back to a place once you've evolved musically. Look at Danzig, Danzig, Glenn Danzig of the band Danzig. He can never write a Misfits album again. He just can't do it. He's not there. He's not in that headspace anymore. Frank Black, he's never, you know, he's tried to write some Pixies albums with mo moderate success, but you know, again, they uh, half of the material sounds like Frank Black songs, you know, so it's like the Beatles trying to go back and, and be, you know, Hard Day's Night Beatles or Please Please Me Beatles or with with the Beatles Beatles. You know, it's just not it's not that easy to do that after you've done Sgt. Pepper and the White Album and Strawberry Fields Forever. And that's what songs like 
two of us and dig a pony and uh you know don't let me down that's what those songs are you know so and then there's even more revelate there's it's even more revelatory than that because at the end of the day abbey road really is sort of a almost continuation of let it be let it be is sort of like this you know get the get back sessions sort of end up not really producing anything and so they go back in and take other material that was not intended for let it be but was like developed at that time that's like oh darling maxwell silverhammer that stuff and then that turns into abbey road remember abbey road contains song fragments like polythene pam mean mr mustard her Majesty, these things are all like little song scraps that they picked up and like, hey, let's make a, a, a suite. Let's do, a, you know, a symphony out of this kind of stuff. But it was not, you know, it wasn't like they went. They're like, OK, now that we've completed the Get Back project, now let's go in and do this. Abbey Road. It's like Abbey Road is kind of like almost like a, a bleed through continuation, maybe of some of that. Um, in any case, we, we got a lot to get through. So let's let's keep let's keep moving on. So Paul admits that John would probably pick Yoko over the Beatles and he's accepting of the inevitable. Um, you know, there's this sort of realization and we talked about this last time in the first part that not touring really crippled Paul and John's writing partnership and began this divide. You know, when they toured, they were living together. They were together all the time. And when they were together all the time and then like, you know, Brian Epstein be like, okay, it's time to write songs for another album. They would just do it. You know, they were just able to do it and they were able to, to grow and they couldn't that, that sort of stopped whenever, when all the touring stopped, they really sort of, they, they split up a, a little bit, you know, in terms of that, they, they, there was a divide that sort of formed. And now we're seeing the full effects of that. We saw, maybe we sort of saw that on stuff like the white album, you know, cause you, you really, Paul's songs and John's songs are so divided. I mean, you have fans that really, that will make compilations of a John White album versus a Paul White album. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's how, like, sort of um, split things were. You would never make a John album and a Paul album on, say, maybe the material on Revolver, right? I mean, those really feel like collaborative songs, but on the White Album, a Paul song is really a Paul song, and the John song is really feels like a John song. And the exception to that is, say, like a Day in the Life, where it really was like uh, you know that kind of collaboration sort of thing. Um, it's harder to write, you know, that it's discussed that it's harder to write with Yoko there because Paul is trying to anticipate something that both John and Yoko would like. And he's, he makes the reference of bl writing about blank white walls, you know, and in this way, she, this is where she is sort of, uh, this is where her part comes into breaking up the Beatles, or this is the, her part of the fact of that factor of her breaking up the Beatles or where that comes from in the sense that she drove by being there, by being that presence, whether John wanted or not, she drove a wedge further and further deeper between John and Paul. And at least at that point in time, when they're in Twickenham, uh, hindered their ability to sort of, uh, be creative she was just let's put it this way she wasn't the only block there were a bunch of things going on but she was one extra block you know what i'm saying 
she was another block in in that added that didn't didn't help you know what i'm saying amy says abbey road is that album cover crossing north london street yes that's the one of them doing the crosswalk that's right there by um by the recording studio amy that's where they did all of their recording a, a, a very very iconic photo as you as i'm sure you know um jody says both are icons but i'm a lennon fan more hi amy <laughs> um yeah man you, uh, you know, you have that divide between people. You have the Lennon fans and the McCartney fans and the Harrison fans and the Ringo fans. Everybody's got their own sort of little, you know, camp that they sort of connect with or, or you know, connect to. But, um, yeah, so Paul is like, it's harder to write because, you know, Yoko, I feel like I have to write for Yoko as much as I'm writing for John, you know, or, or together. And that they're like this avant-garde force that he can't break, break through. You know, and so in that way, it seems like Paul is just attempting to be as understanding and accommodating of Yoko for the sake of, of the Beatles and for the sake of John and for the sake of Yoko and John. But I think secretly it must have eaten him up. You know, secretly it must have really bothered the crap out of him that he that to deal with that. And I'm sure there was plenty of stuff that we didn't see that further backed that up. But in all the footage that Peter Jackson chooses to show us. He is very, very, um, he's very accommodating. And it's, it has definitely changed my view uh, a bit, you know, for as, as much as we think that she was a disruptive force in all the footage we're seeing, she's not. She's very like quiet in the background. But again, we're watching a documentary that's been cut together in a very specific way, politically for certain reasons, you know, on, on that level too. Um. So, you know, yes, we know the Paul is dead story. Allegedly, Paul's not wearing shoes and everyone because he died in a car crash in 66 and was replaced by a doppelganger named Billy Shears. So the conspiracy theorists believe. Yeah. So if you look on the album cover, John's dressed in a white suit as the reverend. George is dressed in jeans and uh, blue jeans and a blue button down shirt. He's the grave digger. And... um Ringo is dressed in like a black suit. He's the mortician. And Paul with his bare feet is the corpse. That's the that's what the Paul is dead people have sort of read into in that kind of way. So and then an amazing thing, Paul sort of predicts the future. He said he literally says it would be incredible if in 50 years time which is now we're we're here 50 years later he says if in 50 years time if people were like they broke up because yoko sat on an amp and he was not that far off that people would blame yoko for sitting on an amp and he just thinks how ridiculous it that that would be but that is absolutely what it was he literally predicted the future and was totally joking about the ridiculousness of it, you know, as if to demonstrate the level of triviality, you know. Yeah, there was a um, documentary on Netflix where they called him full. It was supposed to be a tape of George Harrison, and he was telling us the truth that Paul was actually full and that he was conducting everything from behind a shroud. Um full <laughs> fake Paul so funny um and then even at that point 
Paul is still trudging ahead in faith that something is going to happen. You know what I mean? He is just, he is eternally optimistic. And again, we're going to do a whole video about like the sort of the, the, the leadership, the, the hubris of Paul, you know, there, there, there's an article that I want to talk about. And the article basically just talks about how Paul is on it. It's a get back in the arrogant, tragic genius of Paul McCartney, which I think is just so, so whether I agree with everything that's said in this in this article or not, I just think that the idea of of Paul being an arrogant, tragic genius at the helm of let it be makes perfect sense because he's totally a genius. He's totally arrogant. And the whole situation is tragic. But even at that Paul, Paul even at that point, even in the the midst of despair, Paul is still trudging ahead in faith that something is going to happen. He's he's not wrong. Something does happen. Um, Paul gets a new idea that doesn't go anywhere, but it's a very interesting idea. And it just goes to show you where they were at this point in time, how how much they realized that they could be breaking up, that they would be breaking up. Paul's new idea, he wants, when the Beatles perform their live show, because they're doing like a TV concert, as we talked about, they're doing a TV show or a live show or something, that they're going to have all these like news TV anchors uh, showing cutting edge uh, breaking news in segments in between the songs. And it's going to go on and on. And when we reach the end of the program, they're going to have the latest bulletin, which is the Beatles breaking up, which had they done would have absolutely been genius. It would have just shocked everyone and sort of blown everyone away. But like it would have been genius. And then we get probably the single most profound, sad, crazy, um, prophetic is maybe the right word to use in this situation moment of Paul and his, his eyes are welling up with tears. You know, he he's welling up with tears and he says, and then there were two, you know, he, you can see on his face, he realizes he's, he's doing a lot of thinking behind these, those doe eyes sort of welling up and crying. And just sort of realizing as these cameras are are, are are recording him, realizing that things are probably over or at least that things are coming to an unfortunate end in some way, shape or form, at least in that given moment. Um, he's fully understanding that this is the end of the Beatles, even if he doesn't realize that it's going to happen right then and there. But within the year, it would be so. Um, it, it's a powerful moment showing Paul and Ringo just tearing up and you know, the look just says it all. He knows that so much more. Um, he, he knows that so much more than what than than what's going to uh, or, you know, what's what's intending to happen after the program ends, I guess. Uh, I don't know what, what I wrote there. Um, Paul says to Linda joking. So then they start talking about they're talking about venues, new venues where they can do a performance. And Paul says to Linda jokingly, stay out of this, Yoko, which I mean, which is funny because people, you know, in the pop culture lexicon of like terminology, people all the time to call someone a Yoko, that's a term, that's a pejorative term. 
that's what you call someone who's meddling or interfering or getting in the way or splitting things up. You call them a Yoko. And here he is in the middle of the Beatles are still active. Like this hasn't become a thing. And it's something that Paul McCartney has sort of coined himself by jokingly saying to Linda, but with definitely a little bit of an acerbic uh, bend on it. He's saying, stay out of this, Yoko. It just speaks oceans about Paul and his intentions on embracing Yoko politically for the sake of the group and what he must have really felt deep downside. These are the things that I was reading into. Yes, there are smiles. Yes, they are having fun because they're fucking friends. They're brothers. You know, I mean, isn't that what happens with family? You know, like one minute you're at each other's throats and the next minute you're not. Except in this case, they are slowly uh, ripping apart in a way that they can never come together properly again. Um, yeah, that, I don't know. That is that is a stupid theory. I'm not even going to bother reading it, Dave, because it's just so what a what a, what a ridiculous notion. I mean, there's just too much audio and video to um to i mean there's just no point in even discussing it because just gotta just go to youtube man <laughs> um then we get the flower pot lunchtime conversation between john and paul and it's a great way to sort of um bury the narrative timeline you know in other terms we finished the last segment they're them ending the the you know peter jackson ending with us going to george's house but we don't really know what's said and we're not going to really know what's said unless we read from that book. And instead, we're treated to some of the famous flower pot lunchtime conversations. So here's the thing. John and Paul go into the cafeteria area to have lunch. And they don't realize that there's a microphone recording them. Because the filmmakers, Mikey, Michael Lindsay Hogg and the, the filmmakers, the filming crew... Uh, we're trying to capture as much candid conversation as possible. So they're putting microphones everywhere. They're bugging the place. So they had no idea that amidst, you know, people eating lunch and things going on and they think they're having this private conversation off alone. There's no there's no video to cap to capture this, but the audio indeed was captured. But whenever we've listened and I've listened to many podcasts with the Beatles, whenever we've listened to this recording or recordings like this, the the conversation is you can't hear it. You can't hear it over all the background noise, but with new technology, with this AI technology that Peter Jackson has pioneered and developed in the making of Get Back, he has taught, they have found a way to teach computers to recognize the difference, like what's Paul's voice, what's John's voice, what's this and what's that, and they are separating and isolating sound like they never have before and remixing it you know, um, sort of mixing all the background noise way, way lower and mixing up, mixing the voices higher so we can actually hear what is being said. And so they just do a great job of burying the narrative. They, instead of telling us what happens at the beginning, instead of telling us what happens at the end about, you know, what was sort of discussed at George's house, at least in a polite way, because we don't hear, we don't get the full conversation. We just get some of the flower pot conversation they don't speak, they speak like they already know what they're talking about, you know, so there's nothing, it's not like they're not speaking to an audience where they have to explain things to an audience. So we just kind of glean what we can and decipher from what, you know, we think is being said. But it's really interesting. And this was, again, amongst Beatles, like Beatles fanatics, the flower pot conversation is like this sort of, um, 
uh, uh, just one of those things that, you know, is really, you know, uh, revered in terms of, you know, but, but the problem is no one could ever hear it. You know, you can't hear anything until now. So it's just really cool. It's really cool to finally hear that. And, you know, the dust up, and here's the thing, as said at the end of part one, John says, oh, we're just going to pretend like that didn't happen. There was a dust up in the cafeteria before George leaves. You know, I think Peter Jackson and Ringo Starr and, and Paul want us all to think that what happened on film that we saw at the end of part one was in fact the full reason why George left. Some things were said off camera when they went to lunch, something happened. And again, what that book will talk about, you know, what that book talks about and what was, you know, tabloid, tablicized, whatever, um, uh, reported on in the press and the tabloids at the time, that there was a fist fight. There was a fist fight between John and, uh, John and George. And now it seems like everybody's going, no, there was no fist fight. The Beatles themselves say that there was not a fist fight. They're all saying, oh, it's hogwash. But something had to happen that that pushed him to the edge where he left, you know? I don't know what it was. I don't know. I, I can't tell you what it was. It's just, it, there, it was too, um, something had to have gone down. Is, is all I'm trying to say. Um, and as they're talking in the, this flower pot conversation, John says, uh, you know, talking about how Paul can be controlling and, and really be bossy and whatnot, which we all know about. Um, he mentions that there was a period where none of them could say anything about Paul's arrangements because arrangements seem to be a big point of contention between the Beatles. Even if two Beatles write a song, the rest of the Beatles can sort of have a hand in arranging the song, arranging material is different than say writing the material although as a non-musician i don't know i kind of feel like arranging maybe it's not it shouldn't you shouldn't get a writing credit for arranging but there's something about arranging that i feel like you deserve some sort of recognition for an arrangement i don't know i feel like there's something additional like if you're like let's say you're the director but someone's like a creative producer who's creatively producing something but they're not the director but maybe they're like giving the the, the director feedback and you call, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good analogy. I just feel like arrangement doesn't get enough credit the way it should. I know that producers can be arrangers, right? Like producer will arrange material or help with the arrangement of material. Um, Paul also acknowledges during this conversation, he says, Hey, since the beginning, John, you have always been the boss and me, Paul, I'm the secondary boss. And, Paul wants John to really like take on that leadership role more to join him in a united front when they're trying to show George what to play or not to play, you know? Um, so riot stickers, as you can see the uh, code below our, our, our sponsors here, by the way, look, you'll see riotstickers.com. We'll have a whole thing about that a little bit later on. Uh, said riots, riot, Sharpie riot. Josh says that you should get a writing credit. I feel like you should, right, Josh? I feel like you should. That's just me. I, that's what I feel like. Um, by the way, guys, we're gonna. Uh, Josh is gonna be on the show. We're gonna be doing a pizza punk episode with him very soon, coming this week. So keep your eyes, eyes and ears peeled for that. So after lunch, 
you know, they've, they've he's talked about it. He's like, look, we got to be a united front. John, we got to be united front when we're showing George, George stuff, you know? Um, but after lunch, they decide to go meet with George again. Uh, but the problem is he's now gone to Liverpool and he won't be back until Wednesday. So they decide to just rehearse the songs without him because time is of the essence. Um, and as they work out lyrics for Get Back, it's it's amazing. I, I'm just noticing how Ringo just puts down a beat anytime they start. Ringo doesn't say much. He's very quiet in all this footage. You know, when he speaks, it's great. And you know what it is? At first, I just thought of like maybe Ringo just kind of like is like, you know, hanging back. He's not um, as powerful of a personality as maybe or sorry. I don't know if that's not the right word. I'm trying to think like maybe he's I don't know, maybe more like introverted or something. But then I just realized Ringo is like the silent, confident type. He's just so he's just so like secure and confident in who and what he is and why he's there. It's just so cool to see. And the fact that he left during the White Album sessions really, I think, speaks oceans about Paul and what Paul must have done to get Ringo to that spot where he finally was like, fuck it, I'm out of here, you know? Kind of profound to consider that. But it's amazing to see how Ringo is like a watchdog. He's so, he's so loyal and dedicated and just ready to be the team player that he is. And he just, he blows, Ringo blows me away. He really, really does. Um, and another profound thing about the creative process as I was watching, it's amazing to me how lyrics can make sense, but not sing good and vice versa, as they say. Both are key elements. Like you can have something that makes really good sense and is like super profound, but when you try to sing it, it doesn't really roll off the tongue or you can say a bunch of words that don't actually make any sense. This is what, what Frank Black from the Pixies, again, to reference the Pixies, Black Francis, he always talks about how, you know, because he doesn't want to tell people what his songs are really about. His songs are about something, but he wants to remain like just this like surrealist. And so he says, I sang it because it sounded good. That's what he says. So when he's singing, you know, uh, I live cement, I hate this street, give birth to me. I have no rent, this human form that I adorn, I now repent, caribou, knife me let, let me knife, I will get what I like. You know, he's just saying it for the sake of saying it. You know, it's pretty cool. I'm a horny loser. You can find me um, crashing on my mother's door. I am the ugly lover. Oh, I don't remember. Break my body, break my bones, break my body, break my bones. I mean, it's pretty like interesting how he's like just singing these things that sound in that sound interesting to him, you know, that roll off the tongue. And the Beatles do sort of the same thing. The Pixies are greatly influenced by the Beatles. Go listen to the Pixies, everybody. Just go out and listen to the Pixies. All of their music, every single note. Um they decide to push the shows back a full week. So we were we were on this like crazy tight deadline and it's the first time that pressure is truly alleviated in the situation. So pressure probably reaches an all-time peak when George leaves because it's like, holy shit, we have a deadline and George is gone, he's in Liverpool. What the fuck are we gonna do? And now the very first part of the pressure is relieved because they go, okay, let's push back, let's bias a week's more time because George is not here and there's no way we're going to be ready 
for our original date with George gone. This happened. George left the band. We got to deal with this. So they push, they push the shows back a full week in order to make enough time for George to come back. You know, there's a moment where uh, Paul shows off his old set list on, on his Hoff and it's really cool. You just see it and you got to think that thing is worth, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. If it went, if it was for auction, he just had the set set list tape there. Um, a really touching moment just to show the full spectrum of Paul McCartney, who could be really cruel, who could be really controlling, who could be really bossy, who was brilliant, who was avant-garde, who was um, creative and free-thinking and progressive and, you know, solicitous. He's showing a crew member, uh, this guy, he's the soundboard clapper, some stuff about music, and he says the absolute most profound thing this is a 27 28 year old guy okay he's not you know he's 27 years old paul's 27 years old 28 he's 28 years old and he's showing a, a crew member this and he says the great thing about a piano is that there it all is that's all uh there's all the music ever that's it you know all that has ever been written and will be written is all there so he's basically saying that, like, when you look at a piano, all of music is represented right there on the board. Every combination that can be made. And it's interesting to think what he's saying is basically when he's saying that's uh, all that has ever been written in, in as if because they're, you know, again, you could get into like quantum theories and whatnot. This is about to be a little bit of like a rabbit hole tangent for a minute, but just bear with me because I think it's really cool and it really says something about creativity. And it's like the notion that like on one hand with creativity, we're creating things. We are building things from blocks and pulling them into the existence. And then from the other side, and this is what the Greeks believed. We've talked about this on the channel before with the muse, the muses are inspire um inspire artists and that none of it belongs to us this is what george harrison believed actually we can't take credit for anything we create it comes from the divine and we are simply the the current we are the antenna for which we receive the divine and transpose it into the creative act or art but this idea that all songs have been written already they're floating around in the air somewhere every conceivable song that will ever be written and that if your brain is wired in a certain way you get to decipher the song and you manifest it in this world by creating the right uh sounds and vibrations and notes of noise or lack thereof because Music is not just noise, it's also the lack of noise. It's dynamics. It's the amount of space in between the notes. You know what I mean? And um, that just like all the music is there and that if you're a musician, that music is waiting to be plucked. I think is that is really fascinating. Jody says, off topic that I should do a Lemmy style beard, that it would be metal as fuck. And the truth of the matter is I already have Jody. And if you go to shows from like a year ago or like I have every single, every single during COVID during like the quarantine, I had every single 
conceivable style of facial hair. I also had a chip front tooth. And I, yeah, I had a, I had a Lemmy, I had a Lemmy beard for a while. It was fun. It's a fun little novelty. I, I've been thinking about, I got to do something with my facial hair. Getting kind of sick of this the way it is. In any case, I just wanted to say that. I thought that was so profound that Paul kind of said that though. He said, the great thing about a piano is that there it all is. There's all the music ever. That's it, you know. All that has ever been written and will be written, it's all there, you know. Um, yeah, that's cool, you know. It's like, it's almost like only, only, only like Johnny Ramone and Joy Ramone and Dee Dee Ramone, they're the only people that could pull out the song Beat on the Brat or Blitzkrieg Bop. You know what I'm saying? Like no one's going to come up with that except for them. But that, that song might already have existed. Like the music chooses the person and not the other way around. It's a, it's a profound thing to think about. Um, Jody's really curious about facial hair. What's what's my favorite style that I've tried that that I've wait? What's your favorite style that you tried yet? I I don't know, man. I, I guess the goat, just a straight up goat goatee, you know. Um. Then we see, we, we hear Ringo playing the piano. So Ringo comes in, right? Because as every day, it's either Ringo or Paul. Mostly Paul always shows up first. In, in, in case the previous day before, it was Ringo who showed up first. And um, it's amazing to hear Ringo. Ringo comes in. He's Ringo's playing the piano with Paul. And it's so cool to hear them, to see Ringo playing an instrument that's not the drums, and, you know, if you watch Let It Be, you'll see him composing Octopus's Garden with George Harrison on the piano. And what's interesting, and this is what Steve Zing said to me, actually, on an episode of Streaming Evil Live Show, when we were talking about the Danzig Sings Elvis stuff. And he said that the piano was a percussion instrument. So it makes sense that Ringo might have a knack. Anybody who not necessarily might be able to play music per se, but like, or in that kind of way, like, you know, if you're a percussionist that you might understand the piano, you know what I mean? Um, I think that's pretty cool. So then we see, and then we see them goofing off like they do the Beatles do. We see Paul and Ringo doing this sort of ventriloquist bit when McCartney is composing his song, Woman. And, you know, Ringo is sort of miming his, miming his, the words, and they're filming it. It's just kind of fun. The magic Christian sets start rolling and reminding us that they are going to be shooting that film imminently. And the Beatles talk about doing a short film of some kind. And I, I said this earlier already, but yeah, Ringo's silent presence has totally changed my opinion of him. He's so confident, like a likable alpha male. That's what I said. Um, then they just start goofing, goofing off because they, they can't really, you know, John, John's not, I don't think John's there yet. You know, um, I don't remember where it was in the, the movie when that, they were goofing off like that. So it's just, it's just Paul and Ringo like pulling themselves up on the, the, these chains. But again, so much pressure has just been alleviated by George leaving and having to move the show, you know? Uh, the standard of whatever they were going to do was dropped significantly, in my opinion, and it really sort of helped the situation a little bit, a little bit from what it was in the first episode. In the first episode, you just, you are crippled by the pressure of what they have taken on and realizing that they, they're not going to be able to do, you know? 
Um, and then again, John shows up and the cameras are on them. And it's just amazing how that there's like this Beatle humor, whatever they're that humor that they all had together that made them so likable. They were telepathic with it and they could just turn it on and off in two seconds. You know, it was really cool to see. Then Peter Sellers drops by and it's weird. He's going to be in the Magic Christian with Ringo. And it, the whole the whole thing just feels a bit like uh, strained. I don't know. Peter Sellers, you'd imagine Peter Sellers. Now, he was he was in like a, a, a radio comedy troupe called Spike Mulligan or something. And that that's the connection there, because Spike Mulligan was produced by George Martin. George Martin used to make kind of like novelty goof records before he started producing the Beatles in uh, in late 62. Um, uh, Paul, you know, and then John is, you know, there's, they're just bullshitting around and John starts talking about drug use and Paul gets flustered a little bit. Um, I think Paul probably knew more than he let on in terms of what was going on with John and maybe some of the heroin stuff, you know, in those days with the bus, with the drug bus, that stuff really had to remain under wraps. You know, uh, Lennon did get, but they all got busted. George got busted. Paul got busted at one time. John got busted. That's why John had trouble getting into the, um, staying in, in the United States. They're trying to deport John Lennon. There's a documentary about the United States versus John Lennon because of those drug busts so you know they, they had good reason to sort of be cautious because back then they were just looking to bust you for two joints two joints will get you 10 years you know um you couldn't you can't talk about drugs the way you can talk about drugs today even though even in the 90s when drugs were super illegal you could still like talk about drugs to an extent and not worry about like heat coming down on you but like in the 60s and 70s it was not that way at all man You'd be very, very careful. People were really um, looking to bust, you know, rock stars. The, the the Rolling Stones had their share of troubles too. Um, then John just starts randomly self-referencing Beatles songs. He starts randomly speaking the lyrics of "Help." You know, they they were always they were just really good at self-referencing themselves. That's what they did so well, and. He's just doing that, and it's just really interesting. He's doing all sorts of, uh, they do please, please me, you know. And and eventually they just realize, as they're just sort of dicking around with these Beatles songs, they, they just keep quoting old Beatles songs, you know. Um, they, they realize they're just wasting time without George. You know, Paul is thinking out loud about whether they are going to land in the show or not. And they're just, they just, they're just doing nothing, you know. Um, and, and what's amazing as they're sitting around just burning film is to, it's, it's amazing to think that all of this witty banter that we're talking about with John and Paul and, and Ringo, that all this banter and this milling about is a document of unscripted reality. Like this was not planned. Everything that comes out of John Lennon's mouth, like that's just how witty and sharp he was. That's why he was so likable, you know, um, despite his flaws. He just was so sharp. He was he was a magnetic personality who could just spitfire say something and make everybody laugh in the room. And he loved, he clearly loved, as we can see in this footage, he loved to make everybody laugh in the room. That's what it seems like, you know. Um, so that kind of blew me away, too. Um, as the documentary and the show crash around them, 
Lennon just keeps making everybody laugh, you know? And, you know, this is what the ultimate truth is. If the first part is like a pressure cooker, as we've been saying, the second part is this has gotten so ridiculous and this is such a disaster. We just can't help but laugh at it. And that's what Peter Jackson is saying. I, you know, we all had it wrong. I had it wrong when I was going, oh, you know, they're like trying to whitewash everything and revise everything. I think what Peter Jackson, and maybe I misunderstood, and maybe more people misunderstood this too, you know, those who were like saying like, you know, shenanigans on on the, the crazy the crazy stuff. You know, um, when Peter Jackson says, oh, it's, um, th 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 you know, it wasn't so bad. This was a, you know, the, the, there are a lot of moments of laughter and light that it was very light and happy. Everybody's happy, uses the word happy a lot. It's not that everything's happy. It's that there's like a disaster happening and they recognize that it's a disaster eventually and just go, you know, even in moments like we get this moment of just sadness on Paul and and, and Ringo's face, but then they just like, they can't help but laugh at it. And so they just goof and joke. And that's the theme of part two. The old, that's like the crux of all of part two besides um, Billy, when Billy comes in, you know, that's the other, that's the other part of it. Um, the fifth Beatle. So, you know, you just can't help but but laugh at, at at when when life is just falling apart around you. Um, they they just they just decide like, look, let's do more of a proper album than what we were intending. You know, um, so that's what they're going to do, and and they're going to do it at Apple Studios, which is their brand new studio at Savile Row, which is you know where the Apple Building is, and this guy Magic Alex. Who we've spoken about he's like the, the 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 he's the wacky he's this wacky greek sort of inventor builder scam artist kind of guy that basically the beatles gave a lot of money to build a bunch of stuff including a working recording studio and uh, you know the recording equipment had this loud hiss it was unacceptable he built a 20 track recorder that just didn't work properly um so there's that then um then they meet with george again right they actually meet with george and the meeting goes good and they decide with george back on board let's just shift the direction of what is now being called the get back project this is when they finally call it the get back project they they scrap the tv special it's not going to happen anymore and that further alleviates even more pressure right now that even more pressure has been alleviated instead they will just go down to the as i said they'll go down to the apple studio built by magic alex and they'll record the songs there and that's where things really sort start to shift into let it be although the 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 the, the track the album the sequencing is nothing like get it uh, let it be which really blew me away i just was had no idea you know that's what i was saying how much abbey road really sort of let it be bleeds into abbey road so much more than maybe we thought in the past so George and Glenn Johns discover, as I said, they go down George Harrison and Glenn Johns. Glenn is the co-producer of, of this Get Back, Let It Be project, right? And why do they have him uh, instead of George Martin, per se? 
because he, and I didn't realize this, that around the Beatles program and why they were all so familiar with it, I was a little off. I didn't realize it was because he produced it. He was the one who produced it, right? Which makes sense. So if he's the one that produced it, they want, they need his expertise for that sort of venue for what they were doing. And George Martin doesn't really specialize in that. So George, George Martin was kind of like a consultant on the project. And Glenn Johns was the, 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 the producer, the main producer. But they discover, as I said, they discover Magic Alex's recording studio is not magic at all. Um, there's just too much hiss. And uh, they call up George Martin and George Martin sends over. This is what they do because they need something to record on. So they send over two four track mixing machines from Abbey Road and then feed those into George Harrison's eight track recorder. So we first meet George Harrison has his own recording equipment. He's an eight track recorder, which is a big machine. It costs 10,000 pounds in 1969 which is what like a hundred thousand dollars something very expensive piece of equipment right and in order to but the thing is that's just the recorder you also need to mix you need mixing machines you need a mixing console and they didn't have a mixing console they can use so what they did was they they took two four track mixing consoles like what they would have used on sergeant pepper and then they lashed those together and then ran the eight track recorder from George Harrison's studio. All of this was brought into Apple Studios into the makeshift eight track mixer, right? Um, and as they're setting all this stuff up, no one's allowed to record at Apple. So the cameras are not allowed to record. We sort of lose lose sight of that. But then we get this really cool footage of Apple Scruffs. What are Apple Scruffs? They are diehard female fans of the Beatles that hang outside the Apple building, just hoping to catch a glimpse of a Beatle, preferably Paul. And we get to meet two of them. George wrote a song on his album, All Things Must Pass, called Apple Scruffs. And it's a great track. And if you could guess what Apple Scruffs Apple Apple scruffs um, means like, you know, just the scruffs, like the sort of leftover bits as if what do they do with the apples? They sort of they eat the apples. You know what I mean? And George Harrison's song, Apple scruffs, how I love you, you know, because he enjoys apple scruffs. Uh, George, as as Olivia Harrison would say in Living the Material World documentary about George Harrison's life, George loved women. He loved women. So they're in there. George Harrison is in there. Everybody's in there. George Martin makes a comment on the boom mics, which have made their way over from Twickenham and are still being used at Apple. Uh, and Hogg, Michael Lindsay Hogg responds. Michael Lindsay Hogg really has become a character. He is his own character. He's just as much as much of the director as he is. He is so a part of the story of what we're seeing. And he's such a he's just a character, man. The son, the 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 um the secret son of Orson Welles. He says he's the same age as all the guys. He's born in 1940s. He's the same age as John and Ringo. And he says that they're just needed for conversation when he's talking about the boom boom mics. And, you know, everybody's annoyed by the boom mics, you know, sort of 
uh, leaning in on the conversation, but thank goodness they're there because that's how we have everything that we're watching and listening is because of those boom mics. And immediately you feel that the energy is better in Apple. The atmosphere just changes. Everybody's talking about how it changes. It's just better. And it's going to get even better when Billy Preston comes, right? At this point, the Beatles still intend to record the songs live without edits and overdubs, you know? And that, again, third Pixies reference, that's what Frank Black did with the Catholics. So Frank Black had a band called Frank Black and the Catholics, and they used to record live to tape, and they would just do two-track live recording uh, one track for the instruments and one track for the vocals. And sometimes they would splice two takes together, but essentially that's how they, that is how they recorded, man. And it's just like, when you listen to those Frank Black albums, you are just blown away to imagine, to think that they are recording that live. It's kind of insane how, how well, how, how much chemistry, how, how, how much they're gelling. The Beatles could have definitely borrowed some of that, I think, to, to make it better. Um, so Glenn Johns, yeah, we made mention of this. Glenn Johns was involved around the Beatles, which makes sense as to why he would be used for the live show as the producer over Martin, with Martin there to help out and assist. And, you know, Martin says, like, look, there's no point in changing horses at this point in the race. So they kind of work together now at Apple uh, with the TV show scrapped. They keep filming because they realize they could use it for the next feature film. And they're going to do some sort of outdoor finale to conclude the film. And that's really get the idea. I think it's called Pinrose Park or something. They're going to do a concert there, they think. And, you know, and, and here's the thing. Uh, Glenn, Glenn Johns, he's leaving soon for another session in L.A., and so Martin is there to kind of George Martin is there to sort of uh, co-produce with him. But he, as he says, it'd be silly to change horses midstream. And I love the, you know, and, you know, he was kind of hurt. He was hurt by the Beatles. He was hurt by the Beatles with the white album. John said some nasty things during the making of get back. Let it be about something about like, you know, not, not what you do, but we want to do something honest as if what, what all the studio tinkering that they had done over the last two to three years was dishonest. That's what he was kind of saying. It's amazing. They had three years uh, performing live and then they had three years in the studio. And then the last year was let it be an Abbey road. Isn't that interesting? How that, how that kind of played out. Um, then they're reading, they're, they're kind of reading the papers and we see, we see George's chocolate digested biscuits. Now this doesn't get mentioned in the documentary, but this is why I'm saying they leave shit out George was super mad at Yoko for a sitting in his place at Twickenham, like sitting on his little pillow where he was doing, where he was, you know, playing guitar or whatever. And for eating his digestive biscuits, that's what they call them in Britain, digestive biscuits, they're just biscuits, cookies, whatever you want to call them. He was furious about this. And it's just kind of funny because we don't see her eating any of them at all. Contrary to the fact as a matter of fact, it's Ringo. Ringo takes a bite out of a couple of them, you know? So, um, but that gets left out. That gets left out. And then they start, you know, reading about the fist fight, the supposed fist fight they might have had. Um, you know, the footage that we're watching, it dismisses that there even was one. They, they were 
constantly reading what the papers were writing about them. And, you know, Peter Jackson takes this footage at its word, saying the Beatles are saying that they didn't get into a fistfight, they didn't get into a fistfight. However, as I said, something happened. There was a dust up. And now we're going to read from the book. It doesn't say a ton in here, but it says some. Okay, got it's reading time. Okay, everybody. It's reading time with Jeff. It's time for us to read our magic story. Who wants to hear first? <laughs> no. Um, this was... Ooh, good question. Robbie says, who would have won the fist fight? And I'm going to say it would have been John. George, George would not have won a fist fight against John. So, uh, hold on one second. Let me see. Blah, 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 blah. Here, this is, I'm just going to read the, I'm going to read this page and this page. This is page 60 and 61 uh, from You Never Give Me Your Money. And again, if, if you want to read a fascinating read, again, read this book. I, I, th there's so much, all the acknowledgements and the, the, the index and the bibliography is so meticulous on, on this thing. It, you really can't help but, you know, revel in the amount of care that went into this. So whether you believe it or not, whether you believe any of this stuff or not, it's it's pretty, pretty special, pretty something. Relations had soured to the point that when McCartney sang Get Back, Lennon was convinced that he was aiming the chorus at Yoko Ono. After the Beatles attempted the song, so this is talk, this is going back to Twickenham, okay? Right before George leaves, talking about the fight. We're, I'm, bring, I'm busting this book out because after we recorded the first episode, I then watched the second episode. I'm going, oh my God, like I got to, pull out what is said in this book because it's been a while since i've since i've read it i agree jody even though ringo was the shortest ringo was short ringo absolutely would have laid all of those guys out he was absolutely the toughest one i think ringo especially when you watch that footage of him he's just like such an alpha and i hate using that word alpha but like it's the only word i can use to describe ringo he's just like he's a g he's just like uh not that like an alpha is something that you like want to like look up to. I just mean in the sense that he just seems like a comp, like everything that an alpha wants to be, you know, that kind of thing. Um, he just seems like so confident and reassured of himself. And it's just so refreshing. Like it doesn't come from like a place of like, you know, ego or arrogance. It's just like he's just so um, he just has this wonderful confidence about him. Um, <laughs> yeah. Beatles fighting over biscuits, misfits over cheeseburgers. It always has to do with food. That's why you always got to have your own food when you're being creative. That's the honest truth. But the biscuits were not, the, the, the digestives were not between the Beatles per se. It was the, it was between, well, I mean, kind of, but it was, it was with Yoko. He was mad about Yoko. In any case, let's keep reading. Um, after the Beatles attempted Lennon's song across the universe, McCartney complained that, oh, that, all right. Uh, how do I say this? I think this is an, an uh, a, whatever. I'm just going to read it. This is what's being quoted here. There's an Oriental influence that shouldn't really be there and pretended like he was talking about music. Ooh, that is, I mean, if you don't think that there was some tension between Paul and John over Yoko, 
even if we don't see it in the footage, it was definitely there on some level, right? Um, for Harrison, there was no relief from tension as his wife had become convinced that he was having an affair with Charlotte Martin. We know that Patty wasn't living with George at this time, and she does stop in briefly, but she was not living with him at this time. Uh, Harrison denied it, but Patty left to stay with friends because George Harrison, he liked women, as we just said. Um, I lost my place. A couple of days later, on Friday, January 10th, 1969, after another morning of rejection from Lennon and bickering with McCartney, George Harrison cracked. So we saw that on the tape. We saw the, the, the bickering and we saw the rejection from Lennon. You know, re Lennon's rejecting his songs, you know. Yes, yes. Um, uh, Josh from, from Riot Stickers, riotstickers.com, by the way, Um not only did he like Ringo's wife, how about this? He slept with Ringo's wife. Did you know that? At the end of Ringo's marriage, when Ringo's marriage was breaking up in the early 70s, you know, because he was married to Maureen and then he married Barbara Bach in, in 80, um, George Harrison slept with, with Ringo Starr's wife. Bet you didn't know that. Crazy, right? I didn't know that. I found that out recently. So... A couple of days later, on Friday, January 10th, 1969, after another morning of rejection from Lennon and bickering with McCartney, he cracked. He argued violently with Lennon over lunch. The two men supposedly, so I didn't realize, so I thought this, oh, that, yeah, okay, so he did know, Josh did know what I was talking about, he said he did know that, that Ringo, when he says he didn't just like Ringo's wife, he slept with Ringo's wife, uh, with Maureen. Who, who briefly makes an appearance at Twickenham. You know, I'd always thought that it said that they straight up fought. It says, supposedly came to blows and then told him I'm leaving the group. When, Lennon asked. Now, Harrison replied, you can replace me. Put an ad in the new Musical Express and get a few people in. He drove home to Henley where Charlotte Martin was injected and Patty reinstated. So he kicked out Charlotte Martin who was living with him and Patty, his wife, his wife who he's married to, uh, came back. Um, but the bond between husband and wife had been broken. George would start to say something and then stop, Patty recalled. He appeared unable or unwilling to share his thoughts with me. He kept his hurt, frustration, anger, or whatever it was to himself. So, so something happened with... Lennon over that lunch okay something definitely happened and as I said Lennon says something he says he says are we going to pretend that didn't happen we're just going to pretend that didn't happen and go on you know something happened we just none of us will ever know what it was um, George would often sit hunched over his prayer beads muttering to himself resolutely ignoring anything that was said to him. Harrison's departure came as a shock to McCartney and Starkey, who debated whether they continue, continue without him. Then uh, that afternoon, they started jamming violently, Starkey remembered, and Yoko jumped in. Of course, she was there. While Yoko unleashed a series of screams, McCartney rubbed his bass guitar suggestively along his amp, Lennon corralled feedback from his amplifier and Starkey was playing some weird drumming that I hadn't done before. 
So, I mean, we saw all of that on tape and it actually looked like it didn't look. I mean, it, it was it looked like chaos. It looked like bedlam. It looked like hopelessness. But it also once again, it looked like like a great amount of pressure was just being released. You know, <laughs> there's nothing worse than Yoko's screams. <laughs> do I do it justice? Um, no, you know, when you watch the footage, it seems like they're just letting off steam and that they're enjoying themselves after such a tense pressure cooker of a situation. However, the book makes it sound worse. And again, I read this book 10 years ago. So, you know, it, it, I, I definitely really should reread it because there's so much information. This is honestly, I can't tell you, one of the most fascinating reads I've ever, it's so good. You can't put it down. I, I inhaled this thing. Um, so let me just finish the page and then we'll get back to it. So later, later when a guitar solo was needed, Lennon called out, take it, George, to Harrison's empty chair. While the Beatles closed ranks to avoid reality, Apple ball, Apple boss, Neil Aspinall talked to the film grew about the box George is in a few months a few months of that would be enough for me, but eight years, dot, 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 Lennon wandered into the conversation. Oh, interesting. Wait a minute. So Apple boss Neil Aspinall talked to the film guru about the box that George is in, meaning like the predicament that George is in. I think we see them. We see them all sitting around discussing this stuff. So then Lennon wandered into the conversation about a few months of that would be enough for me, meaning like that. George just took so much shit from Paul and John, just like always taking shit. But eight years of it would just be too crazy. And Lennon wanders in on this conversation and says, I think that if George doesn't come back by Monday or Tuesday, we'll have to get Eric Clapton to play with us, he said. The point is, if George leaves, do we want to carry on the Beatles? I do. But that was Paul, that was John. He would just flip back and forth and just say things that meant everything and then say things that meant nothing. It's just like, it was always hyperbole or lack of hyperbole with John Lennon, you know? Um, we should just get other members and carry on, which was really him being scared. It's so obvious. He's like scared. He doesn't know what to do. And he's going to pretend like this doesn't bother me. We'll, we'll, we'll press on with or without uh, George. It'll be, it will be okay. You know? Um, and then, sorry, I totally lost my place. We should get other members. The suggestion was relayed to Starkey, whose friendship with, with Harrison was steadfast, even though Harrison was going to sleep with his wife in a couple of years, but he wasn't prepared to argue. Do it. He said dismissively. Wow. It was unbearable to me that they should break up. Derek Taylor recalled. Derek Taylor was their press officer, their press secretary. Um, but that was the agenda when all four, four Beatles gathered at Starkey's home that Sunday. George said, what we need is just the four of us. Neil Aspinall reported after the meeting, and I think John knew what he was talking about. But Lennon professed ignorance, telling Harrison, I don't understand you. I don't believe you. Harrison retorted and left. Although it wasn't John who said those things. It was Yoko who spoke for him. 
George, in the presence of all of us, said that another reason for walking out was that he could not get on with Yoko, who was there in the room. Oof. McCartney explained in 1971, Yoko was doing all the talking. Linda Eastman recalled, I'd just tell her to shut up. Aspinall insisted, though he hadn't when the opportunity arose. By that, So you see, there is Peter Jackson and and Yoko Ono and Olivia Harrison and Ringo Starr all trying to make Yoko look like this innocent pawn of, or this sort of like this, you know, innocent to all these accusations, when in reality she was kind of doing stuff behind the scenes. You know, she was sort of twisting gears. Um, by the time Harrison left, the quartet had already agreed that they should split up, but not when it should happen. Starkey and McCartney reported for work the following morning. So when we see Paul, according to this book, I'm just saying according to this book, I'm not saying that it was serious. I'm not saying that it was permanent. They had agreed at that point that they should split up, but not but not when it should happen. Like they don't know when we're going to split up, but that we will split up. And Starkey and McCartney reported for work the following morning. And in Lennon's absence, McCartney felt able to criticize the hold that Yoko established over him. And that's what we see, what we're talking about earlier, where he sounds very sort of, he's being very political and saying, well, John will choose Yoko over, you know, the Beatles, that whole thing. Right. Right, Jody. And and that is that's essentially what we're now seeing. Like we can only read about it before, but now we've actually seen it. You know, um, posterity would find it ironic. He noted that if the Beatles split up because Lennon insisted on bringing his girlfriend to the studio. Sorry, posterity would find it ironic. He noted if the Beatles split up because Lennon insisted on bringing his girlfriend to the studio. As we literally just talked about, Lennon and Yo, uh, Lennon and, and Ono arrived later, but a phone call to Henley. See, isn't it interesting how the book is telling us the same events, but from a completely different point of view? That's why you always have to look at everything. You know, Harrison had driven to see his parents in Liverpool. Right. We already know that. So Lennon and McCartney agreed that if unity had not been restored by Friday, then the Beatles were finished. So. Whether this book is telling the truth or not, what we're not seeing on the camera when the camera is rolling during that time is that John and Paul have agreed that if they can't restore things by Friday, that the Beatles are finished. It's a festering wound, Lennon admitted. It's only this year that George has realized who he is and all the fucking shit we've done to him. Wow. The charade continued on Tuesday, though the tedium was broken by a visit from actor Peter Sellers. Lennon boasted to his comic hero about his heroin use. Um, no, we don't see this on that that bit. Definitely didn't get in. And that explains why Peter Sellers might look so uncomfortable as well, because Peter Sellers looks uncomfortable. He says, so showbiz people need a form of relaxation. He said, it's that or exercise and drugs win hands down. Shooting heroin is exercise, Ono added proudly. Then Lennon sat down with a Canadian TV crew and promptly vomited on the floor. John, and then here's the thing. 
when we see John after that, because John had, you know, they had come from doing an interview, which is why they actually, that's why they weren't there in the morning. Um, John doesn't look like he just threw up, let alone might have thrown up from heroin. It's very interesting. Um, John had escalated to heroin and all the accompanying paranoias. McCartney recalled, and he was putting himself out on a limb. I think that as much as it excited and amused him, at the same time it secretly terrified him. Harrison was persuaded by Derek Taylor to meet the other Beatles at Apple on Wednesday. Brian Epstein, I knew, would have fought and fought and fought to keep them together, he explained. And so I was bolder than I had ever been or ever would be again and demanded passionately at length that George not let Paul carry the weight of keeping the film and the Beatles going. I felt that George's sense of decency could be touched, and it was. Taylor's reward was a postcard in McCartney's handwriting with the stamp carefully torn in half and the simple northern injunction, up your, like up your ass. Um, the Beatles agreed to abandon Twickenham and their live concert and resume filming the following week at Apple. It was time for, for Magic Alex. So we're now just reading where we are in the thing. But it's interesting how we're reading concurrently with what we saw. It's different. It's different. It's sort of a different take on what's going on. I, I definitely am going to reread this book, though. I, I just wanted to go and touch on on the on, on the fight one last time. Um, it was interesting. Also, around this time, John Lennon had done the, his first appearance without the Beatles, doing another band. It was a supergroup called the Dirty Mac, which had Keith Richards, uh, Eric Clapton, I think, and Mitch Mitchell from the Jimi Hendrix experience, which was for the rock and uh, Rolling Stones rock and roll circus, which was also directed by Michael Lindsay Hogg. And he had to enter. He was he was rehearsing for introducing the the Rolling Stones. They didn't have anybody to introduce him. Um, we see a shot of Ringo imitating Keith Moon, which is really cool, uh, especially because, you know, Ringo and Keith were friends and they were very close during the lost weekend, 1974, about four years before Keith's death. And it, it's Keith Moon who teaches Zach Starkey how to play drums. And it would be Zach Starkey who, to this day, still plays with the Who. Um. They laugh at the ridiculousness of Magic Alex's guitar-bass combo. Um, by this point, George is really turned off to Magic Alex, and they're just they're just take as they would say taking the piss, and it's just like a ridiculous concert. It's like a revolving revolving guitar neck that goes from bass to to rhythm guitar. It's kind of funny, funny to look at. Uh, George Martin finally is like stepped up and they're re really takes charge of recording now, you know, Glenn Johns, he's trying to like hook up everything. And they're just kind of like, once again, they're just waiting to record. They, they, the, the, the recording studio is not properly connected and hooked up yet. They still have to do a bunch of stuff, but here is the set list. So this remember when I said how let it be almost is not the let it be that we know or get back is not the get back that we know that it's a almost a fusion of abbey road and let it be here's the set list as the songs were at the time all i want is you which is actually dig a pony the log and winding road bathroom window aka she came in through the bathroom window right yes right josh that was really weird um let it be across the universe Get back to where you once belonged. Two of us are on our way home. Maxwell Silverhammer, 
I got a feeling sunrise, AKA all things must pass and I me mine. So you can see what happens. A bunch of songs are scrapped for the let it be project and other ones that don't make it to that album then get carried over to a new album, a proper final album as the band is disintegrating. It's almost like they're making Abbey Road as they are truly just disintegrating. They're fighting about Alan Klein. They hate doing Maxwell Silverhammer for Paul. It's the end. You know, John and Yoko are off doing their thing. Um, Then we see them all switch instruments. You know, Paul loved to jump behind Ringo's kit because he was a drummer. They're all switching around. Ringo is playing the Hofner bass, which I've never seen before. And, you know, Paul's showing him like the, the frettings, the fingerings for, for the fret. It's so cool. I've never seen Ringo play a bass before. Um, I did notice that the stone, you know, this, the original cover of Beggar's Banquet, not the bathroom with the graffiti on it, but the original cover, it's just a white cover that says Rolling Stones Beggar's Banquet. And it looks just like the Wild Man. It's just like more proof of like the desperate, just like with uh, what's with the, um, uh, Her Majesty's satanic service or whatever. They just were always, the Stones were always a step or two behind the Beatles, always trying to copy their every move, you know? Uh, and I love how they just put the album underneath like some cigarettes and stuff. It's just like classic, you know, just like, oh yeah, this is just good to, put our cigarettes on top of so good um they to keep reading about the press the press about the john and george fight paul sarcastically reads this whole thing about how the beatles have fallen off you know and it's just you know to him to them it's hogwash but the reality is again they're painting a, a different picture than what we just read in that book about the fact that they were like, if George didn't come back, that they were done. They were going to break up. Straight up break up. That would have been that. Right? We get to hear, this is amazing. We get to see them, the the actual footage of John Lennon saying, I dig a pygmy with Paul Bepin and the Deathanes. Which you remember, of course, from the Let It Be album. I mean, this is like this legendary thing. And we're seeing the moment where he, it's just something that he just randomly says off the top of his head. And then it gets like cemented in stone as this thing. It's so crazy to me. Um, and then we see them working out the drumming for Dig a Pony. And it's so cool. You know, watching this gave me a new affinity for the song Dig a Pony. It just, it's such a good song. As I said, you're literally hearing white album Beatles trying to record early Beatles, like please, please me Beatles songs. You know what I'm saying? Like that kind of thing, like stripped down guitar, bass, drum songs without any Mellotrons or any, any of that other stuff. They're just trying to like, like go back to their roots. And it's just, that's what, that's how you have to view, get back, let it be. And it's really cool to think about it in that kind of way. Yes, Rue just brought up Yoko Ono, uh, you know, playing with Chuck Berry and John Lennon on, on a TV show in 1975. See, what happened was John Lennon was sued by Chuck Berry's management for Come Together because Come Together literally rips off a Chuck Berry song. So to settle, to settle the, um, the matter legally, 
John Lennon agreed to cover a bunch of Chuck Berry songs for an LP of covers that he did in 1975. His penultimate album called Rock and Roll, uh, which would be his final album before a five-year break and then return with Double Fantasy. And, well, you could say Milk and Honey is technically the last Lennon album, but really the last one is Double Fantasy. But he goes to play with Chuck Berry. They're doing a Chuck Berry song, and Yoko's banging a drum and going, ah! <laughs> and you see this look on Chuck Berry's face like, what the fuck? What did I just get into, man? It's great. Go look it up on YouTube. It, it, is, a, it is a riot, man, to see that. And John's just oblivious, you know? so funny um get back I, I said get back is a mirror of please please me i think that's what i was referring to about like the them trying to do those kind of songs i'm not sure why get back i said get back is a mirror please please me that's what i put in my notes but in general the goofing the goofing around like the energy is so great now and they're just jamming and messing around and you really get the sense of the Beatles. And again, as I said, that's P Peter Jackson has been going on and on in the press about, oh, everything's really happy. Everything's not happy. Everything is mis not good, but they are being happy amidst things not being good. You know, um, they, sl they slow. And now here's what's interesting. This is where Billy Preston comes into the play. The material that they're working on, they realize that it has room for a keyboard player. They need, they're not doing overdubs live, right? They're doing these live tracks. They need an extra something to tie the songs together. They're missing an element. And that's when Billy Preston, someone who used to play, so Billy Preston used to play for Little Richard. And back in the Hamburg days, when the Beatles would play with Little Richard's band or whatever, they knew, uh, you know, in 62 or whatever, they do these package deals, these these rock and roll band package deals. Um, they knew Billy Preston, right? And Billy Preston's one of his favorite songs they'd always request was A Taste of Honey. It was the, the, the set from Please Please Me, the album, the entire track listing, that's their live set of 1961, 1962, something like that. Those are their songs. You know what I'm saying? They literally are recording the live set. And so Please Please Me is a document of the Beatles live set in 1962. And Billy Preston was around them at that time. So he loves the taste of honey. And when he comes to play with the Beatles, he just brings such a lift. And now here's the thing. We've always been told that it was George Harrison who brings in Billy Preston, but really it's John Lennon. John Lennon is the one that not only does he bring in, not only do they bring in Billy Preston, John Lennon wants to make him the fifth Beatle. He says, let's bring him in as a, as a band member. And then George Harrison says, well, let's get Dylan too. I'm sure he would join. And he was dead serious. He wasn't saying it sarcastically in response. He was serious too. And he said, hey, we can get a lot of people to join the Beatles as like our backing band sort of thing. And just like sort of expand what the Beatles are. And that's when Paul... He's like, look, let's just, it, the, the Beatles is us four. Four is enough. It's hard enough dealing with four, you know? And, but it's interesting how it, it comes from John, not George. And they are just, they're happy to have him, man. And he does, he brings such a wonderful, I don't know what it is. He brings like this, he brings an element musically that was missing from the material, you know? And, 
it, it just yeah as as josh says here i think all the guys had fun playing once billy showed up that really showed on the dock you're so right dude you're so right you just you just see them they you know what he does by having him come in with his his and he plays on a fender Rhodes electric piano same thing that glenn danzig would play on in the very early misfits as well as ray manzarek of the doors that's the Fender Rhodes electric piano, really cool sounding piano instrument. And he makes them loosen up. They play looser. They play sort of, they start gelling better having him there. They feed off of his energy. It's great. And he has a record contract with Capitol Records. And they're like, hey, let's sign him to Apple Records. And they do. And he puts out his next two albums with the with Apple Records, you know? Yes. Yes, perfect example is Rue says, extra flavor ingredient for their old stew. That's what it is. That is exactly what it is. I concur. Um, then we find out, okay, this is big. This is friggin' big, okay? We find out, oh, Robbie says, phenomenal key player. He plays my favorite electric piano sound. Just so good. Yeah, Robbie, that's the Fender Rhodes piano. That's what the, that's Glenn Danzig's piano. The Fender Rhodes electric, man. Ray Manzarek, the doors, man. Which is funny. I didn't even think about that too. That's why Glenn loves that piano so much because that's what Ray would play. And we know how much Glenn Danzig loves the doors. So we get word that John is going to meet with Alan Klein on monday and this is what will spell to complete doom for the band had that not happened with billy preston there and them having a good time the beatles might have survived into the 70s like not saying that they would have lasted in the 70s but they might have survived they might have made it into the 70s continuing to make albums maybe even with billy preston you know billy preston would have ushered in you know this this era of soul you know what I mean? That kind of thing. And that is not going to happen because of Alan Klein. Alan Klein was the manager of Rolling Stones. We talked about this last time. He negotiated a much higher royalty rate for the Rolling Stones. And that's what, you know, Lennon, they were so annoyed with Dick James and the the the, the situation that they had right then. We talked about Dick James was, was the publisher, Northern Songs. They wanted to renegotiate. So John Lennon, and Yoko by proxy, they're going to meet with Alan Klein. And then it's John Lennon that sells both George and Ringo. And what's interesting, too, is when you think about it, Paul gets just as much money and royalties. I'm not going to go into the whole business dealings. Well, I guess I should real quick. Lennon and McCartney both have 23, 24 percent of Northern songs. Dick James has over 51 percent of Northern songs. Northern Songs has all the Beatles songs, but it has more than just the Beatles songs. It's a big songbook. We see them going through it in the first episode. We talked about this. Ringo Starr and George Harrison combined have 1.6%. So they each have 0.08% in Northern Songs. So when John goes to the two Beatles with 0.08%, he is telling them, hey, we're going to get a better rate. We're going to get a better deal. We'll have a better royalty rate for all of our stuff. You know the guys who are getting the smallest piece of the pie are going to be like, yeah, let's do it. And the guy who who doesn't want to do it has an equal piece of the pie that the other guy, John, has. 
So of course he wants his father-in-law, his future father-in-law to be their manager. All of this just spells doom for the Beatles. Um, then they start talking about Jimmy Nickel. Jimmy Nickel was a drummer who filled in for Ringo in the middle of Beatlemania. Ringo had his tonsils taken out and Jimmy Nickel fills in and they talk about how they're just telling stories and they're just kind of goofing on Jimmy Nickel that he was so concerned looking at the girls that he would miss the count in for songs. He was with them for like two and a half weeks or something. So he got to be, he got to experience Beatlemania without earning it properly, just as a fill-in drummer for two and a half weeks, probably the coolest temp job of all time, you know? Pretty sweet, if you ask me. Um, And then they go back to just making fun of their old songs again. And they're doing Please Please Me and Help and they're just having so much fun. You know, uh, Paul, you know, who does like backing vocals on help. He's doing all of his, all the, like all the words that he's supposed to like jump in and sing, you know, like help feet ground. You know what I mean? <laughs> they're, just, they're just having so much fun and they're, do they're doing please, please me too. It's just, it's great, man. Um, then they start, they start talking about, Hey, we got to put out a single. The last one they had put out was Hey Jude. And it was five months ago. Now, look, anybody who's in there, the crowd, I don't know if Robbie's still here. Robbie puts out music all the time. It is an incredible undertaking to put out. If you put out one single a year, you're doing something right. Like it's not easy to put out. Like if you're putting out an album once a year, that's a lot of material to do every year. It's not just like. It's not so easy, right? Like it's, you gotta, there's a lot that goes into, into putting out a release. These guys are like, oh my God, it's been a five whole months since we put out a record, which by the way, a uh, single record, which by the way, has sold millions of copies and shattered every other record. I believe it's uh, pre-selled 3 million copies, which was a record at the time for Hey Jude, right? And they're like, well, we got to figure out what to put out next, you know? So they're deciding, I think they're going to put out Get Back or something. I just thought it was funny that they made mention five months, five months, like five months is a long time, you know, um, they do. They do get Billy Preston a contract, right? They get him and they're trying to figure out like how we're going to fold him in. John wants to make him a full member, but George is, you know, saying, you know, we can kind of if we do it like this, then we can get him as a session musician and, you know, only have to pay him this much. You know, uh, George was. For someone who was so spiritual, he was always thinking about the the the, the bottom line, the, the bottom dollar. You know what I mean? Always trying to save a buck, and they're just trying to decide how they're going to pay pay Billy Preston. And I said here again, you know, after John says I, he straight straight up would like him in the band. Imagine if Preston ushered in the Beatles in the '70s by adding piano to all the songs. You know. Um, and this is this is actually when George jokes about getting Dylan and Paul's kind of against it. Um, then they they have a breakthrough, right? They've been rehearsing all of these songs for like what since the beginning of January and just not really making any leeway. Remember, this is a band that's used to like, okay, we have an hour and a half till lunch. We have to finish this song and we have to come up with this harmony and do this thing. They've been doing this for the last eight years seven eight years right of, of recording they only recorded for seven years so they, they've been doing this for the last six years of their recording career doing stuff in a very condensed short amount of time and not only doing stuff in a very short amount of time but it be everything that they're doing is brilliant 
you know, and they're doing it like once or twice and just getting it. This is the first time that we're seeing them just absolutely struggle to just sort of make this material gel. And they finally crack the nut on two of us when they strip it down to acoustic guitars. And finally, the song takes the shape that it's supposed to. You know, it's kind of it's kind of amazing to see. Um, there's a scene where Ringo brings in a Sony video camera, and that's really cool because it's like 1969, and it's one of those. So here's the crazy thing. He's got this Sony uh, video camera that takes real, it's like probably like half-inch videotape, you know. Um, and what's amazing about that, too, you know, they did have videotape in the 60s. I mean, but it's just crazy technologically expensive compared to say shooting on film celluloid a lot cheaper to shoot on so this is like he, he's he got this like really it's a toy it's a toy you know and essentially it's like you know if you're taking home movies it's like having an iphone you know you're, you're shooting little movies that of of your life you're documenting your life and so he's walking around with this sony this sony video cam and like i said it has the the you know it has the the, the whatever you call it the the suitcase whatever the thing the thing the um oh god i don't know what you call it the uh the place where the the where you put the video it's like a shoulder bag you got to carry separate from the camera itself right and it, it makes you wonder like if he's walking around with that like what he must have documented on that camera and all the candid conversation he might have gotten or things that, and who knows, does it still exist? Does it not still exist? You know, apparently there was a fire at Ringo's house in LA in 1976. Maybe, maybe that footage didn't survive. Who knows? He did put out that photography book not too long ago and had, you know, photographs because Ringo is a photographer and, you know, had photographs going all the way back to the Beatle days. So maybe not everything was lost and then we see this incredible section we hear them talking about india and it's just it's it it is mind-blowing okay it's so freaking cool because we're seeing all this footage that some footage that we've never seen before you know we're seeing the the iconic infamous you know not infamous whatever you want to call it we're seeing Lennon got into the helicopter with the Maharishi and they go up in the air and he's going to, he asked the Maharishi, what does it all mean? You know, this kind of thing. And it's a moment that's talked about in a lot of books. And then we're actually seeing it like it exists. You know, that, that stuff is so cool. So we see all this stuff about that. They just do this little India. They segue into India. I love how, you know, uh, Peter Jackson finds a way to sort of segue into other moments in Beatle history. Um, via conversations that they have are are like springboards to go off in this on these tangents where they kind of like reminisce and it just I, I just think it's really really cool really really cool um we see okay so i i was going on and on and on about how john didn't really want to play on any of george's songs for the most part and he's you know he maybe he you know he does play on them, but he's just not as interested. He does play slide guitar on "For You Blue," and we watch that. We watch the take, like the take that's on "Let It Be," like on the album, the "For Your Blue," like the track. They, there's footage of it, and we're watching it being recorded, and it's just so. Again, I'm just blown away that we're seeing these iconic moments that we're so used to hearing. We're now seeing the counterparts 
to the audio of it, you know? But it is interesting to see that even that there is an example of John playing on a George song, despite what we think about I Me Mine and yada, yada, yada. Um, at this point, the show is in flux. George mentions that nothing they've done that they've worked on has been, you know, overly planned, meaning, look, guys, whatever we've done in the past, we've always been successful. We've never been overly planned. We just do something and it's great. You know, they just go and do it. Why does this have to be any different? And ultimately arranging another concert location, like an alternate one, because as I just said, the show's in flux. Like they can't do it in the pinwheel park, whatever the hell it was called. Um, they, they're not really sure what, where they can go. They don't know how to arrange anything at that point. Because like I said, another location is kind of impossible. Um, Paul wants a big payoff and the rooftop is suggested by Michael Lindsay Hogg and Glenn Johns. And it's amazing. We get to key in zero in on the moment where Paul's face just lights up at the notion, you know, and then they go up and they check on the roof. They're, they're not sure if the roof can support the band and the equipment, but they check it out and it looks great. And then everybody gets drunk and they do let it be in the studio. And all that's left now is the rooftop concert. And that's where it leaves us, right? Um, so that's part two. And again, a definitely goes on and on and on. But if you're a Beatles fan, you can't get enough of this stuff. Like, you will watch. You will just watch. Like, give me the 18-hour cut. I'll just sit there and watch the whole thing. I'm definitely going to have to rewatch this at some point in the future just to sort of like, you know, maybe I'll revisit it in a year uh, just to continue to glean more things you know because i'm so busy taking notes because i want to do these shows and review the the thing i i feel like a second viewing will definitely be necessary in the future and it's long enough and you know there's so much to digest that like i feel like you could watch this like like probably three times and still not fully understand the scope of what peter jackson is doing of what you know what's happening in the footage there's just so much to look at and 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 mull over. It's really it's really is something else. I got to tell you, um, first of all, thank you so much for sitting here with me and doing part two, which came in under two hours. First one came in over two hours, but we had to do a whole introduction, right? Well, we read the book this time too. In any case, I'm glad that we that I had these notes and that I could stick to these notes. And speaking of sticking, do you guys need stickers in your life the way I need stickers in my life? Stickers are really, really useful. If you're an artist, you know, if you are some sort of creative person, if you have something that you want to get out messaging, a brand, a logo, the best way to do that is a sticker. I've used stickers all the time in the past when I've been doing that kind of messaging. And, you know, what's really great is right now, this show is powered by riotstickers.com. We've been talking with Josh from riotstickers.com in the chat. He's been here as well. He's going to be on the show, Pizza Punk. We're going to learn more about riotstickers.com as well as Josh himself. But here's the thing. He's running a deal, a very special promotion at riotstickers.com. You can see it below here. And 
if you go into the description of this video, you can click on the link for said deal. And here's the deal. It's a very simple deal. Normally, it costs $59, but you know what? You can get these stickers for 50% off. It's $29.50 for 50 three by three inch stickers, vinyl stickers, okay? Three inches by three inches. That is a lot of real estate to put your messaging, to put your brand, whatever it might be. And if you use the promo code FROMUS, you're gonna get a 50% off discount. See that right there? That's what you gotta do. So go into the description here, click on the link, and use the promo code FROMUS to get 50% off, $59. You get 53 inch by three inch stickers from ryanstickers.com, independent business. And I'll tell you something else. You really, truly um, uh, can't find a better deal than that. I mean, that is a really, really good deal. There are competitors out there, uh, allegedly, allegedly, they don't stick as well. The, the stickers don't stick as well. I've used Riot stickers and they stick really, really nicely. Here, let's watch a video about it. Wow, absolutely amazing. So like I said, go to riotstickers.com. The link is down below, the exact link that you need in order to get this deal, and you can get 50% off with the promo code from us, F-R-U-M is in Mary, E-S-S. That's F-R-U-M-E-S-S. So make sure you do that. Make sure you like, share, and subscribe to this channel. We're doing, we're on a Beatles kick right now, okay? We still got some more Beatles. We're gonna do the third part of this review for the third, um, the third uh, episode. And then the last thing we're going to do is we're going to sort of do like a post, a post, blah, blah, a post-mortem show where we talk about the tragic genius of Paul McCartney and his failed leadership at the end of the Beatles. So we'll do that as well. Um, thank you, Rumorg. You as well. Thank you, Jody. Um, we will see you all this week with more great shows. Appreciate you all you guys. Let's, um, Let's let's play out with the Patreon. By the way, if you belong to the Patreon, go check out uh, right before Christmas. We have a special Patreon surprise for all the YouTube casualties on Patreon. What 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 do you want to know about this Patreon for? I don't, let, me, let me show you. Peace and hair grease. Hey guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. So I've decided to make a Patreon. What is Patreon? I don't know how to define a Patreon. Let me look it up. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it very easy for creators to get paid for the things that they're already creating. I want to do it full-time. I want this to be my full-time job. In my efforts to make that happen, I've set up this platform. Is it going to work? Is it gonna be successful? I don't know, but I would rather try and crash and burn than not try at all. The goal 
is to create enough passive revenue so that I can continue to do this full time uninterrupted. Why? Because I love to do this. I love creating content. I love making videos. I love shooting films. I love doing podcasts. In case you couldn't tell, I love to talk and I never shut the fuck up. So right now, I've kept the Patreon incredibly simple. There's two tiers, and that may change in the future. The Murdergram is a simple way to extend support for all of the hours and hours of free content on the channel for nothing more than a dollar. 38 cents goes to Patreon. What's a buck 38, eh? It's less than a cup of coffee. But it's a great way that you can show support for very little effort. When you divide that dollar 38 by the hours and hours and hours of time spent listening to this endless drivel of content, the dollar cost average works out. Next up is the YouTube casualty for $6.66. The YouTube casualty is loaded to the gills. Enjoy the archive ad-free as well as ad-free early access to special docu-style podcast videos, music reaction commentaries, and the like a month before they drop on YouTube loaded with ads, I might add. You're also going to get exclusive content and behind-the-scenes content that is not available on YouTube or anywhere else. So you get to peek behind the veil. And believe me, there's a couple of choice pieces. Most of all, more than anything, whether you join the Patreon or not, I just want to thank each and every one of you that comes to the channel, that watches all the shows, that leaves comments, that participates that subscribes, that's really the most important thing. This is just trying to find a way to earn a living as an artist. And with that, thank you for my TED Talk. Join the Patreon, because we need you! 66 cents.